Hello, it's Monday, the 22nd of January, and welcome to Career 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jang-woo. A cold snap has gripped the nation, with lows plunging to minus 10 degrees Celsius in some parts of the country. The freeze expected to last through Wednesday. We'll have more in news briefing shortly. With tensions on the Korean Peninsula ramping up, we speak to the former U.S. diplomat who brokered the North Korea nuclear deal in 1994. He warns that the threat of nuclear war should not be dismissed. And coming up for Monday's Sports Roundup, we dissect South Korea's disappointing draw against Jordan in the Asian Cup and the latest from the Winter Youth Olympics in Gangwon. Let's begin Korea 24. South Korea awoke to bitterly cold temperatures on Monday as the mercury fell to as low as minus 10 degrees Celsius in some parts of the country. The cold snap is now expected to last through Wednesday, according to the National Weather Service. Our KBS World Radio news editor Gu Hee-jin joins us in the studio now to bring us the latest weather updates as well as our other headlines of the day. Hee-jin, hello. Hello, jang So The weather agency explained that the Arctic wave is similar to the chill that hit across the U.S., in the past week that caused more than 80 deaths. But what can you tell us about the bitter cold that has gripped the nation here in Korea? Well, the Korea Meteorological Administration on Monday forecast sub-zero temperatures to continue into the afternoon and beyond at an average of 10 degrees lower than Sunday with six below forecast for Seoul. Sporadic snowfall accompanied the chill in parts of the country with the mountainous areas of Jeju expected to receive more than 30 centimetres until Tuesday, while the western region of North China Jolla and southern coastal areas of South Jolla forecast to see more than 20 centimetres. The KMA explained that high atmospheric uh, pressure over western Mongolia and the Bering Sea is blocking the passage of air from west to east and a low pressure system sits over the South Korean uh, north east with a cold front driving through the two systems towards the country. The weather service projected the cold snap to remain through Wednesday with daily temperatures to fall below the yearly average until Friday. Moving on to politics, where a chill also seems to have descended upon the presidential office and the chief of the ruling People Power Party. Han Dong-un, the interim chief of the PPP, has confirmed that he rejected a demand by President Yoon sung yeols office to resign. This comes amid apparent internal strife over how to deal with allegations that First Lady Kim Gunny received a luxury bag as an illicit gift in 2022. What can you tell us? Well, despite initial de- denials by the uh, presidential office uh, that he demanded, uh, uh, that it demanded the d- uh, resignation of PPP chair Han Dong-hun, um, he later as in Han, confirmed that the order was given but rejected. Speaking to reporters, Han said on Monday that his understanding is that his term will continue until after the general election, adding that he will carry on his duties with priority to the people. Despite being widely recognised as one of President Yoon sung yeols closest confidants, the sudden rift comes as the PPP is seemingly in the midst of an internal strife over how to deal with the bag incident so-called, and the PPP lawmaker Lee Yong, a close supporter of President Yun, said on Sunday that the First Lady should not apologise for the matter in a chat room for ruling uh, party members. 
Still, some members of the PPP have called for an apology from the First Lady, fearing that the allegations could serve as a contributing factor to an election defeat as the party seeks to regain the majority from the main opposition Democratic Party. Indeed, and the top office seemed to have taken a step back from the dispute later on Sunday, saying that the chairman's future is not a member uh, matter for the uh, presidential office to be involved in, but appeared to reignite on Monday with Yun skipping a government public debate in the morning at the last minute. Despite leading the four previous sessions, the top office sent a notice of Yun's absence to reporters 30 minutes before the start of the forum, later explaining that he was presenting cold systems. Uh, cold symptoms, sorry. The main opposition Democratic Party, on their part, said it will re- review legal options after accusing the presidential office of interfering in the ruling party's affairs over its demand that the PPP leader resign. Well, speaking to reporters following a Supreme Council meeting on Monday, DP Chief Spokesperson Kwon Chisung said Han has confirmed such an order was made by the top office in noting that it was met with a rejection. The Chief Spokesperson said DP, uh, the DP views such a request as a violation of political neutrality, adding that the opposition will conduct a legal review to determine possible avenues. He asserted that there is clear conflict of interest behind the intervention, stemming from the likely attempt to protect, uh, protect First Lady Kim Gonhee over the uh, luxury bag incident. Meanwhile, a block of four opposition parties are set to demand that President Yoon sung yeol apologise over an incident last week where an opposition lawmaker was forcibly removed from an event by the president's security staff. They're also calling for the sacking of the presidential security service chief. Can you tell us more? Well, main opposition Democratic Party floor spokesperson Choi Hae-young said on Monday that the decision was reached during a an emergency meeting of the leadership from the DP, the Minor Justice Party, the Basic Income Party and the Jinbo Party. The parties are also set to submit a request on Monday afternoon to convene a session of the Parliamentary Steering Committee to discern the truth behind the incident. Last Thursday, uh, PSS agents hosted hoisted over their shoulders uh, Representative Kang Song-hee of the minor progressive Jinbo party by his arms and legs and carried him out of an, uh, the event at jo- uh, North Chola province while covering his mouth after the lawmaker held on to Yun's hand during a handshake and confronted the president demanding a change to the principle of state affairs. Let's turn to inter-Korean matters now. The top office on Sunday downplayed North Korea's recent claims of an underwater nuclear weapon system test as exaggerated and fabricated. Can you explain? Well, the statement came two days after Pyongyang said on Friday that it conducted a test of the underwater uh, weapon system called the Hale 523 in the East Sea in response to the recent maritime drills between South Korea, the US and Japan. The president office said the test, if it occurred, is presumed to have involved a type of torpedo rather than a nuclear-powered system, which it said is highly improbable given that there is no reactor capable of fitting into a torpedo with a diameter of less than one metre. The, the office also stressed that the South Korean military also possesses the ability to overwhelming, uh, overwhelmingly strike the launch sites of such weapon systems, adding that it will further strengthen and its anti-submarine capabilities and defence posture for ports. 
And finally, let's turn to some sports news. The South Korea men's field hockey team has failed to qualify for the upcoming 2024 Paris Summer Olympics. Can you explain? Well, South Korea unfortunately lost 4-3 to Ireland in the third place match during qualifying on Monday, failing just short of advancing to the Summer Games as a top three finisher out of eight nations in the tournament. This marks the third time in a row that the South Korean men's national team has failed to reach the Summer Games after failing to make it to the 2016 Rio Olympics and the 2021 Tokyo Olympics. Yes, we'll be talking more about this in tomorrow's In-Depth, where we'll be examining Korea's recent failures in qualifying for the Olympics in many of the team ball sports in Korea, and also mm-hmm. how that's connected to the record low birth, birth rate in Korea. That's coming up tomorrow. In the meantime, that's where we wrap up our news briefing. Hee thank you for bringing us those updates. Thank you. A few weeks into the new year, the situation on the Korean Peninsula has seen worrying developments. In early January, North Korea fired artillery shells into the West Sea for three consecutive days. Then just last week, the reclusive state said it had successfully launched its solid-fuel hypersonic intermediate-range ballistic missile. This comes less than a month after the launch of an intercontinental ballistic missile on December 18th. Along with such provocations, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un's rhetoric against South Korea has also grown notably more aggressive in recent months, designating the South an enemy state now. And with South Korean President Yoon Sung-yeol issuing tit-for-tat rhetoric, the tensions do not appear likely to die down anytime soon. To get some expert analysis on the situation, we're joined via video call today by an esteemed guest. We have with us Ambassador Robert Gallucci, Distinguished Professor in the Practice of Diplomacy at, at Georgetown University. He served as the Chief US Negotiator during the North Korean nuclear crisis of 1994. We bring him in now, Ambassador Gallucci. Hello, and thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. So North Korea has stepped up its military provocations with the new year. This comes amid some concerning rhetoric from the regime as well. Leader Kim Jong-un called for a constitutional amendment to define South Korea as, quote-unquote, the most hostile state. That was during a speech addressing the Supreme People's Assembly in Pyongyang last week, according to North Korean state media. Uh, during an end-of-year plenary as well, Kim said that North Korea is no longer interested in reunifying with South Korea as well. So, Ambassador, how do you assess North Korea's recent provocations amid these statements? I think I am joining uh, a number of Mali. Uh, all of us have been watching over decades. Uh, you mentioned the negotiation with the North Koreans in the early 90s that led to something called the Agreed Framework. Uh, that was 30 years ago. And we have intermittently over the last set of decades, we've witnessed the North Koreans uh, doing various things of the kind that you noted in your introduction, Um, artillery barrage, testing of ballistic missiles, um, aggressive rhetoric. Uh, So there's a sense in which uh, 
there's nothing new about this. Notwithstanding that sense, I think a lot of us, again, who have been watching North Korea over a long period of time, think there may be something different and something more troubling um, uh, in what's happening lately. And I think that's because uh, we think that the North Koreans are approaching the international situation in a different way. Their complete disinterest uh, during the Biden administration in having any talks with the United States, their continued embrace of Beijing, but more interestingly, the more recent embrace of Moscow, uh, and a general feeling that the North Koreans believe that they are uh, no longer interested in normalization of relations uh, in order to get out from under sanctions, international sanctions, uh, or to uh, get better behavior from their perspective on the part of the Republic of Korea and its ally, the United States, for example, um, tuning down our joint military exercises. What I'm saying here is that the context now is really quite different. It's worrying. Uh, the language uh, seems to be extremely aggressive and provocative. The designation of uh, South Korea as an enemy uh, is new and troubling. Uh, and the North Korean constant reference to its nuclear weapons and its willingness to use them uh, makes many of us uh, worry that a misperception, a miscalculation, uh, could lead to a catastrophe. I guess uh, another worrying aspect at the moment is uh, South Korea's response as well, hardline response. In response to Kim's recent comments, President Yoon Sung-yeol vowed to punish North Korea with measures a several fold stronger in the event that the regime carries out a provocation against the South. What do you make of Seoul's response uh, and the rising tensions between the two Koreas? When it can't be too surprised that there was a, a vigorous response from the government in Seoul to what the North Koreans um, said uh, immediately prior to their reaction. So uh, that isn't so surprising. It may be as troubling. It, it doesn't reduce tensions. It only serves to... Uh, jack them up to enhance the uh, the tension, um, but it 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 really suggests that uh, point. Uh, the United and its allied and others in the international community, Japan certainly, is a, a concerned state, uh, need to find some way of um, persuading the North that the course they are currently on is not really a good one for them or for anyone else in the region. I mean, what we are concerned about here, most concerned about, I'd say, is not only a, a, a potential conflict, uh, but one that gets out of hand, one that might become a nuclear conflict. And that happens when the North uh, fails to understand the commitment uh, that is, is included in the alliance between the United States and the Republic of Korea between the United States and Japan, two strong bi bilateral alliances with uh, nuclear guarantees that go with those alliances, then North needs to understand that uh, these are not to be pressed, uh, they shouldn't be tested, uh, and that no good will come from that.
It seems your concerns recently led you to write a commentary for the uh, National Interest titled Is Diplomacy Between the US and North Korea Possible in 2024? And you wrote in that piece that we should at least entertain the thought that nuclear war could break out in Northeast Asia in 2024. That sounds like quite a a stark warning. Can you elaborate on this thought for us? What sort of scenarios could lead to such a war and why do you think uh, we should be thinking about this at this point? Well, I intended the warning to be stark. Uh, I intended that um, we, uh, that is to say the South Koreans, the Japanese, the the Americans, um, uh, as the allies on one side of this confrontation, Uh, be very clear uh, with the North uh, about the strength of our alliance and also about our interest in avoiding a conflict. Um, One of the things that I I worry about is, as I said, misperception, poor calculation, uh, perhaps a a mistake on the part of the, the North that they can succeed in nuclear blackmail, in intimidation, uh, that their confidence in their own military capability, for example, the uh, you mentioned the IRBMs, intermediate range ballistic missiles that the North Koreans recently tested, but before that they tested uh, intercontinental range missiles, missiles that can reach the United States of America. We know that they have nuclear weapons that they talk about all the time, uh, and they may have in their in their minds that they can deter uh, an American response to an aggressive behavior by the North. That would be a miscalculation. That would be a mistake. And it could be a catastrophic one for all parties. So I issued that stark warning uh, because I'd like us all to work to avoid miscalculation. Uh, when both states now, North and the United States, have nuclear weapons, uh, we normally, usually, conclude that as through the long period of the Cold War, the two sides will be in something of a mutual deterrent posture. Uh, and it's been called MAD, Mutual Assured Destruction. Uh, it is not clear to me that the North has such a capability. Uh, it is nowhere as near as capable as the United States. It may have as, uh, as many as 100 nuclear weapons, but the United States has more than 5,000. So this is not something that the the North should be testing. It shouldn't be testing the deterrent posture of the United States, and it shouldn't be testing our ability to extend that deterrence to both of our allies in Northeast Asia, uh, in Japan, and in the Republic of Korea. But I did intend the warning to be stark, that we need to be careful that there is not a mistake, a miscalculation, uh, a unauthorized launch uh, of any kind. Right. So you wanted to remind us and wake us up to the dangers uh, that lie uh, in this situation. But how likely do you think such a scenario could be in 2024, if not nuclear war? How do you think the situation on the peninsula uh, will pan out this year? Well, no one can be surprised uh, if there are provocations from the North. What you mentioned in your opening remarks were provocations by the North. But we've seen that before. 
Sometimes we pass it off just as a, um, a method by which the North keeps the issue of sanctions before oh, about North Korea on the agenda of the international community. It's a way of reminding everybody of North Korea's importance and its potential for causing um, catastrophe. All right, that we've seen before. It is not new. Or sometimes we would see it as a, um, the creation of a bargaining chip so that it could get into a negotiation and bargain uh, to get a reduction in intentions from uh, perhaps sanctions relief or some other move by the United States or its allies. But that is, I would say, in the normal course of things in Northeast Asia. That's not that unusual. We start and we're having this discussion uh, right now because there are different factors uh, uh, here in the setting in which all this is happening. And the rhetoric of the North Koreans is different and it's more provocative and it's more dangerous. And the context, this whole feeling that the North Koreans project that they no longer seek normalization with the United States, the United States from a North Korean perspective may be a declining power in Asia. China may be a rising power in Asia. Uh, North Korea is seeking to become, as to turn a phrase, the arsenal of a dictatorship with the, with the Russians by supplying them with certain uh, missiles uh, that may be useful in the Ukraine contingency uh, that the Russians uh, have provoked. So this, the setting here is different. It's more troubling. Uh, but overall, what hangs over all this um, I think, is the fact that North Korea does have nuclear weapons, that North Korea is aware of uh, the potential it might have to intimidate with its nuclear weapons. And the United States is aware of that risk. The United States uh, extends deterrence to South Korea and to Japan. We value their non-nuclear weapon status, uh, and we're serious about that extended deterrence. So we want the North Koreans to understand that we will not be intimidated and nor will our, our, nor will our allies. Uh, and it's important not to test that because that can lead to a catastrophe. Right. So the risk is very present. But the question then becomes, what can we do about it? Uh, especially when, as you've mentioned, North Korea currently seems to have no interest in diplomacy uh, with the United States or uh uh, South Korea at this point. Is there anything that the US can do to prevent nuclear war? Uh, you also said in your uh, article, uh, in the last year of the Biden administration with a seriously contested election in the offing, it is hard to argue the timing is right. What can the US currently do, the, the Biden administration currently do to improve its relationships with uh, North Korea? Well, I'm not in government now. I'm an observer like you're an observer. And I think it's a good idea to call them like we see them, as they say. And what I see now is a, um, a president uh, in the last year of his, uh, what I hope will be his first term uh, as president. Uh, and that's typically in international affairs, not a terrific time to start new initiatives internationally. Um, he will be focused and his administration will be focused on an election, uh, as it ought to be. Uh, so it's not an ideal time to launch an initiative of some kind, whether it's in Northeast Asia, in Europe, or in the Middle East. But those 
three areas right now are quite troubled, which is a, uh, in a necessarily soft term, I guess, for a very, very hard situations in all three regions. And you ask what can happen? I think, first of all, the United States much, must leave absolutely no ambiguity in the minds of the leaders in Pyongyang about the clarity and strength of our alliance with the Republic of Korea and with Japan. Those alliances are strong, they're healthy, and they should not be tested, I say, for, I think now for the third time. That's one thing the United States can do. Second, um, I think it can uh, be clear about its willingness uh, to engage when the North should choose it would or decide it would be in their interest. And that means by, by saying that we would engage, that we would value a normal relationship with North Korea. That is not to say that we would be accepting North Korean nuclear weapons and North Korea as a nuclear weapon state. But there's no reason uh, to make the denuclearization, as we used to call it, of North Korea the first step that must be taken. Um, I don't think we can do that, or we should. I think it should be clearly an objective of what we want in Northeast Asia. We want a denuclearized Northeast Asia. But we can do things to improve relations uh, without addressing that as a first element uh, in an engagement. Um, I think there are things that uh, still trouble the North uh, about um, U.S. activity in Northeast Asia, and we could address that. There are lots of ways of uh, improving our readiness uh, and military readiness, uh, improving uh, cooperation between our two sides that the North may not find nearly as provocative. There are things that might, could be done, and I think in a discussion with the North, we could get into that. But the North has to be interested in that. It must believe the United States truly wants to normalize relations. And if it does come to that conclusion, then an engagement might be possible. I'm not predicting it. As a matter of fact, I'm saying it's very hard to do in an election year. Uh, but it's a, a worthy thing to do. And I think to put diplomacy uh, on the table as something we would um, value if it were possible is only, uh, only reasonable uh, if we want to avoid a conflict. And also, what would you like to see from South Korea uh, during this time as well? What role should South Korea play at the moment? Well, as soon as we start thinking about what engagement might look like, everybody has a role. It's hard for me to imagine uh, serious discussions between Washington and Pyongyang in which Seoul has not taken a real, a real position in, in those discussions, uh, is not consulted very closely. It's hard for me to imagine this without including our ally, the Japanese. And I would add, while relations between Washington and Beijing have been better, to say the least, uh, I think the consultations with the Chinese are essential if progress is going to be made with North Korea. So I think uh, I would start really with the Republic of Korea. I'd start with Seoul. And what we'd want to do is make sure that domestic politics or other things that uh, any democracy takes account of when it's dealing in foreign affairs. Um, all f foreign policy becomes domestic policy whenever 
uh, an election is in the offing, and even when it's not. So I think consulting with South Korea to make sure that we are all on side uh, and uh, sort of on the same uh, uh, sheet of music uh, in approaching the North, that would be a very good and essential thing. Uh, And to do that with our other ally and also with the Chinese who are always important to North Korean calculations. Well, you've certainly given us a lot of food for thought today, I would say, perhaps on uh, some things that uh, haven't been taken seriously enough by some people, I guess, but perhaps it is necessary to reassess our standings as well, especially considering the changed circumstances, as you mentioned at the start, uh, on the peninsula. We will leave it there. We'll be speaking to Ambassador Robert Gallucci. Thank you once again for your time today. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index lost 8.39 points, or 0.34% on Monday, to close the day at 2,464.35. The tech-heavy Kosdaq also dipped, losing 2.98 points, or 0.35%, to close at 839.69. On the foreign exchange, the local currency strengthened 0.11 against the U.S. dollar closing the day at 1,338.91. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. Next up, it's Korea Trending, our daily segment where we take a look at some other news stories that have been trending online. And for that, we have with us in the studio now, Diane Yu. Diane, hello. It's great to see you. Hello, jang Okay, let's get into our first story. What do you have for us? Asiana Airlines has begun to measure the weight of passengers boarding international flights for 10 days starting today. The South Korean airline began to measure the standard weight of passengers at the departure gate of the international terminal at Kimpo International Airport from today until next Wednesday, January 31st. If a passenger does not want to be measured, they can refuse. Okay, so when the story first surfaced last year that uh, Korean airliners might start weighing passengers before they board their flights, understandably caused uh, quite a bit of controversy. Mm. So just to clarify, the airline is measuring the weight of people who are willing to be weighed, Mm -hmm. wearing their full attire together with their carry-on bags. So why are they gathering such information all of a sudden? Well, for the safety of the passengers themselves. In accordance with the Ministry of Land, Infrastructure and Transport's Notice for Safe Operation, the weight of passengers, including carry-on baggage, is regularly measured and reflected in operations. Measurements are collected anonymously and are not used for anything other than averaging to obtain the passenger standard weight. And it's measured by airline at least every five years or when necessary, according to the ministry aircraft weight and balance management standards. Standard weights is used to distribute the weight of the aircraft to maintain balance and increase operational safety. Standard weight measurement methods vary slightly by airline but are generally divided into domestic or international flights, winter or summer, and adults, children, or infants. 
Okay, so they say it's to ensure safety, but there's an economic reason behind it as well, right? Yes, generally, airlines fly with about 1% more fuel than actually needed. And by knowing the standard weight of passengers, the amount of additional fuel consumed can be reduced. Asiana Airlines plans to derive the standard passenger weight by combining the measurement done this month at Kimpo Airport with the data from the international gate at Incheon Airport slated to be conducted from February 6th to March 31st. It's certainly not common practice, which no. is why it has caused such a stir. But right. I understand that it's not totally unheard of and that there are no rules against it. But as we said, it's entirely optional and mm-hmm. there won't be any additional charges depending on your weight, as some had reported in the past. Uh, in the meantime, I would be curious of the data the airline is able to gather and how yeah. much it does help safety and reduction in costs. Mm. Let's move on to our second story now. What do you have for us? Culture establishes a connection between the old and the new, enlightening the future generation. That's why UNESCO designates World Heritage Sites to safeguard cultural legacy and prevent the loss of these time-honored traditions. However, there has been an increasing issue at one site with historical significance in South Gyeongsang's Kimhae City, Taesongdong Tombs. Last Tuesday afternoon, a local private activity group volunteered to pick up trash at the tombs, and surprisingly, the trash bag were filled with dog feces. Right, dog waste. Mm. Filled with dog waste. That is surprising. I'm not sure if uh, we mean that uh, literally filling trash bags with dog feces or not. But the story is that there's been a concerning amount of dog waste that irresponsible owners have left at this historical site. Right. Uh, before we get further into the story, can you tell us more about the Taesongdong tombs? Well, the Taesongdong tombs, also known as the Kaya Ancient Tombs, was officially designated as a UNESCO World Heritage Site last September after around a decade's worth of effort. It's open to the public for 24 hours a day, and a lot of people living nearby visit the site to stroll around or to walk their dogs. Right, and so at the time when that group we mentioned earlier was picking up trash here, Mm -hmm. I understand that they said there were a lot of citizens with their dogs being spotted, sometimes even without a leash. Right. Complaints regarding unleashed dogs and their waste unpicked have been filed to the city a lot of times. However, only placards and information boards containing precautions for walking pets have been installed, failing to solve the problem. According to the Animal Protection Act, pets must be kept on a leash of less than two meters when going out and their weights must be collected. When violated, dog owners are subject to a fine of up to 3 million won, which is about 22000 US dollars. However, the city is not actively cracking down or imposing fines to protect the ancient tombs. I see. So has the city come up with any better solutions after the recent controversy? The city has begun environmental improvement work and establishing measures such as nighttime landscape lighting to ensure more thorough management. And its city mayor, Hong Taeyong, promised to come up with solutions that can both protect the historical site and the pet owner's rights. Yes, yeah, so an unfortunate situation indeed. Mm. Let's uh, move on to our final story. What else has been trending today? South Korea drew 2-2 two to two with Jordan in the second group e-game of the 2023 AFC Qatar Asian Cup in Doha on Saturday. The game against the team from the Middle East left many Korean fans disappointed. And striker Cho Gyu-sung, who also plays for the Danish Superliga club Midtwillen, has been especially drawing flack with fans flooding Cho's social media with malicious comments. Yes, I'm sure we'll talk more about this game in our sports roundup segment next, mm-hmm. but it was a disappointing performance. Right. But what's gotten the Korean fans so upset with Chul? 
The 25-year-old striker was motivated to make up for his poor performance in the last game against Bahrain, so he tried to shoot without delay whenever he had a chance, but all of his attempts failed. In particular, in the 55th minute, Igijae's mid-distance shot was parried by Jordan's goalkeeper. The ball ended up with Cho, who shot again, but the ball missed the target. In the end, the striker was replaced in the second half. Afterwards, his social media became a battleground for Korean football fans with people criticizing his football ability with harsh words and others supporting and rooting for him. Right, so there were critics and supporters uh, on his social media. Mm -hmm. So what kind of comments did people write? Angry fans poured out various criticism, taking issue with his latest appearance on entertainment programs and his long hair, saying that he should focus more on training in games rather than appearing in television shows. But supporters said we should stop the witch hunt and support the Taeguk Warriors no matter what. Yes, he did have a bit of a bad day in the office, unfortunately. But perhaps some of the criticism has been rather unfair in crossing Mm -hmm. the line. And it's unlikely to help his confidence and subsequently the team's performance while the competition is still ongoing. Indeed. Uh, Unfortunately, we saw similar incidents during Korea's last match against Bahrain as well, right? Right. This time regarding Igije. The left-back received malicious comments when Bahrain grabbed an equaliser during the second half of the match. It had gotten so bad bad that he had to close the comment section on his social media account. Yes, one can be critical of a player's performance, but going onto their social media, making it personal, Mm. is something else entirely. Hopefully, Chor and the team can rise above it, because I'm sure they're just as eager to bring success for Korea as the fans. We'll get into the details of the match a bit more next. But first, that's all for Korea Trending. Diane, thank you for those stories, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. We continue on now to Monday Sports Roundup, where we digest the latest sporting results and headlines each week. And providing us with the updates, we have sports reporter Yu Ji-ho from the Yannick News Agency joining us over the line. Ji-ho, hello. It's great to have you with us again. Yeah, it's great to be here too. So South Korea got their campaign at the AFC Asian Cup in Qatar off to a start last week. They have two games in the bag now. First was a 3-1 win against Bahrain. And then on Saturday, as we mentioned earlier, the Tegel Warriors salvaged a late 2-2 draw against Jordan. It was largely held as a disappointing performance against a team that was 64 places below them in the FIFA rankings. Korea now sits second in Group E to Jordan due to goal difference. And Jiho, they're now in danger of not finishing first in their group, right? Right. And they may not actually be the bad thing, but we're going to get to that a little later. Uh, for, with, with the draw against Jordan, now after Son Min scored, converted his own penalty in the ninth minute, Jordan tied things up with an own goal by a Korean midfielder, Park Yong woo and then a late first-half goal by Yazan Alimet gave them the lead. And it was Alimet's own goal in the second half, stoppage time, that allowed Korea to eke out a two to draw and give them a uh, one, that, I guess, you know, salvaging a one point. Now, Jordan still leads the group with four points. Korea also have four, four points, but they trail Jordan in goal difference, plus four to plus two. Now, in this group stage, the first tiebreaker is the head-to-head record between the two t- between the tied teams. And obviously, since Jordan and Korea had a draw, 
the first tiebreaker for them will be the goal difference in case they finish with the same to- point total. Uh, this means Korea must route uh, Malaysia on Thursday and hopes that Jordan do not beat Bahrain or big or better yet, they hope that they must hope that Jordan lose to Bahrain, period, uh, in order for Korea to win Group E. Now, for, from Korea's perspective, uh, beating Malaysia should not be a really big problem, but uh, uh, at this point, given the way they've been playing, uh, you know, beating Bahrain 3-1, to but basically uh, relying on one guy, you got to to carry the heavy load. Uh, at this point, I think expecting a goal barrage might be a little unrealistic uh, at this point. Right. It was a frustrating performance against Jordan. Jiho, where do you think mm-hmm. it's going wrong for the Tiger Warriors? The head coach, Jürgen Klinsmann, has been under fire from the fans for his tactics. Sure. But some players have been feeling the brunt of the fans' frustrations as well, uh, particularly the striker, Cho Song, as mm-hmm. we mentioned earlier in the show. Yeah, you know, with the Klinsmann, you know, he's been on this team for about a 10 months now, uh, I think 13 matches in. And if you ask pundits or even fans, observers, what they thought of, what they think of Klinsmann's tactics and strategies are, uh, you know, they wouldn't know what they are in the beginning, in, in the first place. Uh, you know, I, I guess the big knock against Klinsmann even before he came over to Korea was that he's not really a tactician, uh, actually, an old guy. He's more of a manager type, kind of, uh, he's always smiling, always. Uh, you know, getting guys to smile and laugh and, and kind of put him in, put him in an ease. But when it comes to drawing up plays and, you know, formulating tactics, he's not really the guy. And, you know, this is a team that relies really heavily on the top dogs, guys like Son Heung-min, Lee Gang-in, uh, you know, someone like when he was playing Hwang Yi-jo and now Cho Gyu-sung. But, you know, not everyone can be at the top of the game every every time out. So when Yi Gangin was playing well against Bahrain, you know, he was able to get two goals in the second half and give them the victory. But he was not as dynamic against Jordan as he had been against Bahrain. Mm, so right. when that doesn't go well, uh, you know, does the does a Klinsman coach team have a backup plan? I I guess the answer is no at this point. And, you know, this team doesn't really have a lot of depth behind those top dogs. So if they struggle, uh it's not as though he's gonna have a lot of really viable options that he can bring off the bench. So right. uh, you know, I guess relying on those top guys, you know, he's. I guess he's got the luxury of having luxury of having those Europe-based guys peaking, uh, or at least they were peaking in the club seasons. But uh, you know, not everybody's going to be on the top of the game every game out. So when that happens, he doesn't really have a backup plan. Well, Korea's performance in the first two games has certainly lowered our expectations. Still, mm-hmm. it could all still click, and if they do manage to beat Malaysia by several goals and top the group, there's a chance that Korea and Japan could meet in the round of 16, right, instead of in the final that many had expected before the tournament began. That's because Japan has also been struggling themselves. They mm-hmm. had a shock loss to Iraq on Friday. So how are things looking for the knockout stages? Yeah, so I mentioned earlier, finishing a second in the group for Korea is not maybe a bad thing because uh, if you finish in the first in Group E, you're going to play the runner-up from Group D, and then most likely will be Japan. Uh, you know, Japan suffered the big first big upset of the tournament against Iraq, losing two to one. So this means Japan Japan cannot finish higher than second place in their group. So if Korea wins the Group E, uh, the two bitter sporting rivals will clash in the round of 16 on January 31st. Now, these are the two teams that are expected to meet in the final by winning all the group matches and advancing through the knockouts. Uh, but if you know both teams finish as the runner-ups in the group, uh, Korea will play Group F winner 
at this point, likely either Saudi or Thailand. Now, the players would not admit this publicly, but maybe some of them would most likely prefer to avoid Japan this early in the knockouts uh, because Korea's last two meeting, meetings against Japan ended in the 3-0 wins for Japan. So, uh, you know, Japan obviously being still one of the favorites to win, uh, I, I guess it's the same for Japan. They would prefer to avoid Korea mm-hmm. that early in the knockouts. Right, especially if the teams aren't clicking at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll just have to see where all the chips fall after the final group games. South Korea's final group game against Malaysia is this Thursday, 8.30pm Korea time. Let's turn now to the 2024 Winter Youth Olympic Games, which got underway in Gangwon province last Friday. And the host country, South Korea, earned its first gold medal from short track speed skating on Saturday. Jiho, let's talk about the early days of this two-week competition. Yeah, sure. Well, the opening ceremony was held Friday night, and the uh, the first day of competition was Saturday. And Korea's first gold medal came from the men's 1500 meters in short track, with Chu Jae-hee finishing in first. His teammate Kim Yoo-sung got the bronze medal in the same race. So the medals are tallied in real time online if you go to the website on, for the uh, for the Olympic Games here. But uh, International Olympic Committee, the IOC, does not officially rank teams in a medal table. Uh, the medal totals for the Youth Olympics also not archived on the on the IOC website. So if you look at some of the past editions of the Youth Olympics, you're not going to find the official medal table on the IOC website. Uh, so and this is really by design. Uh, they they place a greater focus on friendships and cultural experiences for young athletes rather than uh, some cutthroat competition that you might find at the uh, Senior Olympic Games. Indeed. So the first goal of four Korea still came on Saturday, but the host country got some disappointing news on Sunday as well, as one of its biggest stars was ruled out of the event uh, with injury. Snowboarder Chegaon will not be able to compete on home soil after suffering a lower back injury in Switzerland. Uh, Jiho, what more can you tell us? Yeah, so Chegaon was competing at a World Cup event and should place in second place in the qualification for the women's half pipe. Uh, just behind the two-time Olympic champion Chloe Kim from the U.S. But while training for the final, uh, Che fell and injured her lower back. Uh, she was transported to a local hospital where a doctor recommended surgery. So uh, Che Gaon will miss the uh, Winter Youth, Youth Olympics in uh, here in Gangwon. Uh, her half-pipe event had been, is actually scheduled for February 1st, which is the final day of competition. So it would have been really a nice way to cap off the Olympics uh, with the 15-year-old sensation winning the gold medal in front of home fans. She really doesn't have a lot of competition in her age group at this point, but uh, really a devastating injury for Che and also for fans who are looking forward to seeing her compete on home soil. Yes, that would have been the perfect cherry on top for the event, but the most important thing is that chair recovers well. In the meantime, I'm sure we'll hear of uh, some other rising stars over the next 10 days or so. Finally, we end with some volleyball news. The daughter of Hall of Fame pitcher Randy Johnson will be pay- playing in the V-League starting later this month. Willow Johnson has signed with the Hunguk Life Pink Spiders as their new foreign player. So, Jiho, some American sporting family heritage coming to Korea then. Yeah, some uh, big name here indeed. Uh, Randy Johnson's daughter, Willow Johnson, will be replacing Yelena Milanjanovic as the team's opposite hitter. Uh, she will be playing alongside the Korean volleyball legend Kim Young-kyung for the Hangong Life Pink Spiders. So Johnson was a pretty good player at the University of Oregon, uh, left-handed, just like her father was, 
playing uh, playing baseball, and her father was one of the tallest pitchers in Major League history. She's listed as six foot three, just about 190 centimeters tall. Uh, she played some uh, professional volleyball in Turkey, and also in the U.S. for the uh, Athletes Unlimited Pro, Pro League, uh, which is the only indoor women's pro league in America. So uh, Hong Kong Life right now, they're in second place behind uh, Hyundai ENC, who closed up the first half of the season on a six-match winning streak. Uh, so uh, Hong Kong Life deficit went from, they were sitting you know, just two points back at, at some point, but uh, on the heels of Hyundai's uh, six-match winning streak, the gap has grown to eight points. Uh, Milanjanovic was really struggling. Uh, you know, There were times when her body language wasn't great. Uh, she was apparently having some issues with the coaching staff as well. So they decided to curtise with her and brought in uh, uh, Rilla Johnson. Uh, and, and she was she's expected to make her debut in the V-League uh, sometime later this month. Right, and what sort of impact is she expected to have? She obviously has uh, a very recognisable surname, mm-hmm. uh, but what's her uh, sporting prowess like going to be for the Hunger uh, Life Pink Spiders? Yeah, you know, any time a foreign player comes in mid-season for a contending team, there's a lot of pressure. And uh, Johnson, just because of her connection, her family genes, uh, she's going to draw even more, even more attention to herself. So there's there's the added layer of the pressure on her. So, you know, when a team goes out and replaces a foreign player like this, they expect the replacement to perform right away. So, again, there's a lot of pressure to, uh, you know, start kind of hit the ground running and really fit right in. And that's going to be a bit of a challenge, too. I mean, volleyball essentially is the same everywhere everywhere you go. But uh, just making the adjustments to life in Korea, uh, she's never, you know, been in Asia as far as I know. Uh, so just having that adjustments on top of having to play on the court, mm. uh, there's a lot of pressure on these players. Sure, we'll see how she does. OK, that's all for our roundup this week. Jihua, thank you for those updates. And we'll talk again next time. Take care. OK, thanks for having me. And that's where we wrap up our show today. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back same time tomorrow. So we hope you can join us again then to continue to get your daily dose of Korean news analysis. Till then, we hope you have a great day. I've been your host, Kwon jang and thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye.